in a friendly, family-type place when before you can even walk in the sanctuary, the lady on the stage is talking about your clothes. So I want to thank Natasha for that wonderful, wonderful welcome, talking about wearing winter clothes in the summertime. But we thank God for Natasha, do we not? <laughs> in all seriousness, it is good to be here. It's good to be among family and friends. So let me go ahead and pray for our time together, and then we'll get started. Lord God, we do thank you for laughter. We know that it's from you. Father, we do thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you even now for the songs that we have been singing. Um, still just, just touched by knowing that we are clothed in your righteousness alone, and because of that, we stand faultless before your throne. But that's the only way that we can stand before you, because if it was not for Christ, Father, we would drop dead. Our sins would un completely undo us. But now that we are found in Christ, if indeed we are in him, that when you do come, when you return to take your church, Father, we are found among the number that are called, that we would stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So we thank you for that this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Father, I ask even now that you will use me to speak your word to your people. It's in your son's name I do pray. Amen. 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 So again, it is, it is good to be here. Um, as was mentioned earlier, we'll be uh, spending our time in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll go verses 1 through 12. But before we get there, most of you guys probably know where I'm from. That's a pop quiz. Where am I from? Nobody knows where I'm from? Philadelphia. Planet Earth. But everyone knows I'm from Philly. That's like something that I always tell people. You don't know I'm from Philadelphia? In this That's crazy. Well, I'm from Philadelphia. Born and raised, Right? And so growing up in Philadelphia, my father was one of the elders at the church that I attended. So I've been in church life all my life. I haven't been a Christian, but I've been in church a lot, right? So once I became a Christian, still going to church, um, but as a quote-unquote regular member. Wasn't in leadership, didn't have any official title. But now that I've been a pastor for almost three years, which is not a long time at all, but it seems like an eternity, but in a good way, right? People of God are wonderful. I love God. I love his church. But now that I'm a pastor, I've been rethinking through some things, right? And one of those things is Christian ministry, right? Asking whys and the hows. Why do we do certain things? How should we do certain things? So I've been rethinking these things over the past three years as a pastor. And so what I'm inviting you guys to do today is just join me in what I've been thinking through, right? And so this morning, like I said, we're going to uh, kick it off in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm so sorry, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And so in this chapter, in these first few verses, these 12 verses, what we will actually find is that Paul himself is putting his ministry on trial, right? We're going to see Paul call both God and the Thessalonians to the witness stand to testify in defense of his own gospel ministry. And as we step through these verses, what I'm calling the transcript of the trial, what we're going to see is that Paul is going to paint a beautiful picture of what authentic gospel ministry is. And when I say authentic, I mean gospel ministry that honors God when it's being performed. We're going to see what it looks like. We're going to see what it feels like. And what Paul's going to show us in these few verses is that authentic gospel ministry requires us to be honest with man, those that we're ministering to, and honest with God, the one that we're ministering for. And so we're going to do that by examining four areas of gospel ministry that require us to be, one, 
honest with man and tell the truth about our pain. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 2. Number two, we have to be honest with God and tell the truth about our motives. We'll see that in verses 3 to 4. Number three, we have to be honest with man and tell the truth about our actions. We'll see that in verses 5 through 10. And then finally, number four, we have to be honest with man and tell the truth about our goal in Christian ministry. And we'll see that in those last verses, verses 11 through 12. So, Natasha, thank you for reading verses 1 through 5 for us. I'm going to go ahead and read it again, starting at verse 1 and then ending at verse 12. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there, and it reads as follows. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring forth from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with their pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The word of the Lord. So right there in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul starts by showing that gospel ministry requires us to be honest with man and tell the truth about our pain. Paul comes right out the gate in verse 1 with the end game. We see the final results of his ministry where Paul says, our coming to you was not in vain. It was effective. He achieved the very purposes for which he was sent. From that end game now, as we step through verses 2 to 12, we're actually going to see that Paul is flashing back to the beginning of his time in, first, in, I'm sorry, in Thessalonica. So you know how if you're watching a movie and a character in the movie is telling a story and they kind of want you to go back with them, right? So you know they play that weird music, doo-doo-doo-doo, and then they, the screen kind of wobbles and flashes and all of a sudden you're 20 years in the past with this little child on the playground as they're telling their story, right? Paul's doing that exact same thing here in verses 2 to 12. So what we're going to see is that for the majority of the time that we're spending in this text, he's talking in the past tense, Right? So he can't, so what he's going to do, since he can't use a screen, he's going to use words, right? So he, there's no music, there's no wobbly, wavy screen, but instead he's going to use words to announce his flashback. He's going to do that by using the past tense. And so we'll notice that in chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, Paul actually alludes to the flashback that he's now going to step us through. So if you turn back one chapter and start at verse 4, let me read for us verses 4 through 5, and it reads as follows. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, 
because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And so now from these two verses, what Paul is doing is he's going to unpack this. He's going to elaborate what he means when he says what kind of men we were, how he proved to be that kind of men, and what he means by for your sake, right? So again, look at verse 2 in chapter 2, and we see that Paul says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, we see again that Paul is using the past tense, so we know that we're in his flashback, but he's also given us time and location to kind of center us on exactly where he wants us to go. So we know that he's starting his flashback in Philippi. And if you know your Bibles well, you know that he's taken us back in the Bible to Acts chapter 16 in Philippi, which is the city where he was ministering before he went to Thessalonica. So in Acts 16, around verse 16, Luke tells us of the many days that a spirit-possessed slave girl followed Paul and Silas around the city. And this slave girl, possessed by this spirit, was able to tell the future. She was a fortune teller. And her owners, as I see some history, you know the story, her owners made a lot of money by doing this. This happened for many, many days. She's following around, shouting and yelling at them. And eventually, the Bible said that Paul became annoyed. And what he does right there on the spot is he performs an exorcism. Right there on the spot, the spirit leaves that little girl. But that's not the only thing that left. They could no longer make money off of her. So their money-making schemes, they left with the spirit, right? So these brothers, they got mad. And the Bible says they gathered some wicked men and they formed a mob, right? So not only did they form that mob, but let's actually, let's go ahead and pick it up in Acts chapter 16, verse 22. And we'll see exactly what happened. After these wicked men formed a mob, this is what Luke tells us happened in verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. So we see that Paul and Silas were verbally attacked with rods. They were physically assaulted by people yelling accusations at them. And then we're told that they were unjustly imprisoned. Whereas Paul says back in 1 Thessalonians 2, they, were, they suffered and were shamefully treated. But that's not the end of what Paul tells us, right? So he comes into Thessalonica leaving this experience in Philippi, but once he gets into Philippi, we're told at the end of verse 2 that he had to preach the gospel in the midst of much conflict, right? So now Paul, in his flashback, again, is taking us back to Acts 17. So when we go back to Acts 17, we find Paul, as he normally does, preaching in the synagogue, right? So he goes there, he preaches the gospel, and many come to Christ. Luke in chapter 17 of Acts around verses 5 and 6 tells us that the Jews became jealous. They formed a wicked mob, and this mob took Paul and Silas, or actually they were looking for Paul and Silas, couldn't find them, but they found this man named Jason. They actually dragged Jason and other Christians through the streets down to City Hall. We're told that they attacked Jason's house. They, uh, dra again, dragged him down, and then they are yelling accusations at him just like they were yelling accusations at Paul and Silas back in Philippi, right? So when we go back to 1 Thessalonians 2, probably be going back and forth there, but what we know is that Paul tells, tells us that the Thessalonians know all this, right? So when you look at verse, uh, where am I? if we look at verse 2, we say, though, but though we had already been suffered and shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. 
So they know that they were beaten with rods. They know that they were in prison falsely. They know that they had these accusations yelling against them because Paul told them, right? He didn't seek to hide this from them. He didn't seek to sugarcoat it from them. On the contrary, Paul was forthright and told them everything. That's why when we look here, Paul can say, you know, because he told them. But then they also know what happened in terms of this midst of the conflict because they were in Thessalonica, or Thessalonica rather. Some of them actually witnessed Jason getting dragged. Some of them witnessed the mob forming, and some of them were actually the same Christians that were getting dragged through the streets. So again, they know exactly what Paul's talking about in this flashback when he says they were shamefully treated, suffered, and he had to preach the gospel in the midst of much conflict. So Paul's honest with them. He tells them everything that he has suffered before he ever steps foot in Thessalonica, and then he knows that they already know about this hostile environment that he had to minister in. And so by doing this, by telling all the pain that Paul has suffered, he actually reveals to us three realities about the Christian life. Number one, the Christian life is hard, right? It's not an easy thing, mentally or physically. So when we minister to our neighbors, it's important that we don't promise something that God never promises them in his word. We can't promise anybody a life of ease as a Christian. We can't promise them that all their troubles will magically disappear, right? So if you notice, again, if you look back in Acts 17.10, we're told that Paul and Silas escaped Thessalonica under the cover of night, right? And then they go to Berea. So they're able to get out of this environment. But the Thessalonians, they go back home. They go to bed and they wake up in that same environment, in that same city that allowed men to be dragged through the streets, in that same city where an evil mob is able to be formed, that's their reality. Day by day, they go back to that. So now we have a lot to offer in the gospel, and we shouldn't confuse that. Forgiveness of sins, peace with God, right? The promise of the Holy Spirit. Just as we sang earlier, that when Christ returns, we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. And we'll be able to stand faultless before the throne. So all those are great things, right? And we pray and we hope that by God's grace, the harsh realities that our neighbors face will dissipate, that they'll disappear, that they'll go away as the kingdom of God invades the here and the now. But we can't promise that. We don't have a, a, a what do you call that, an eight ball. We can't tell the future. So they may go away, but they may not. But what Paul is showing us is that we have to be honest about the difficulties that lie ahead when we call people to faith in Christ and ask them to walk the straight and narrow road, all right? So number one, that number one reality that Paul shows us is that the Christian life is hard. When we accept that reality, the second reality appears, and that is that God has a purpose for our pain. So we may not understand everything that God allows to happen in our life, but we can be sure that God has a purpose for our pain. So here what Paul says uh, earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Speaking of Thessalonians, he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Acacia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So Paul is saying that God used what these Christians endured in this hostile, aggressive, and dangerous environment for two kingdom purposes. One, he used their pain and suffering to encourage other believers. 
So we see that right there that Paul said they became an example to believers in two large areas, Macedonia and Acacia. So Macedonia is a region that has cities. So the city of Thessalonica is in Macedonia. And we're told that by the way they accepted the gospel, in this conflict, that their faith had gone out to the other cities in Macedonia. But not only that, we're told that their faith, by accepting Christ in the midst of conflict, went over to Acacia and the cities there, which is that next region over. So God was able to use the way that they came to faith through their pain and through their sorrow to encourage other believers. And Paul calls them an example. But an example of what? They're an example of how to live out the painful realities of the Christian life. Now, it's important to realize that we have to be honest not only about our pain, but the impact that our pain can have on our lives. Because that, too, is part of the example. So Paul is not saying that the affliction that they encountered didn't impact them. He's saying that they felt that impact. They felt the pain, but they pushed through it in time and were still able to have faith in Christ. So we have to realize that Paul is not a robot and neither are the Thessalonians. They feel the effects of their struggle. So when Paul's in Philippi getting beat by rods, Luke doesn't get that a lot of language, but we know that Luke felt every one of those blows. We know that he was wounded, most likely bleeding rather. So we know that Paul actually felt that pain. We know that when we read in Acts 17, when men are being dragged down the street, that it actually left physical and emotional scars. Having a wicked mob yell accusations at you causes mental anguish. It can sometimes cause depression, sometimes cause hopelessness. So the Christian life is hard, and we have to be honest about that, but we also have to be honest about the pain that we actually feel as we're going through this Christian life. We can't, we can't hide that from those we're ministering to. We have to be open about the pain and the impact that the pain has on us. So listen to these words from Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 2 to 5. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by the afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and your labor, I'm sorry, and our labor was in vain. So Paul says he told them rough times were coming and they indeed have come. But he shows great care for them in sending Timothy to encourage them, to establish them, and to learn of their faith. Because Paul knows the struggle is real and then it can shipwreck someone's faith. So Paul showed us two kingdom purposes for the pain that the Thessalonians endured. One is that it encouraged other believers, and number two, something I call gospel explosion. So if you look at the second half of verse 8, you'll see that what uh, Paul records for us, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. So Paul says their faith, turning to idols and turning to the true God in the midst of this conflict, has gone global, global rather. So again, God uses their hardship to spread the gospel. So we know and we can be assured that God has purposes in our pain, and we see that right here. He can use it for kingdom purposes. And then that third reality that Paul shows us is that the gospel must keep moving. So look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, and we find these words again. 
But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Notice right there in the middle of what happened in Philippi and what happens in Thessalonica is Paul preaching the gospel in the midst of suffering. So Paul is highlighting the fact that he's able to preach the gospel. But notice that he couldn't preach the gospel in his own strength. Right? So listen to one commentator as he, as he describes this boldness in Christ. Paul is not speaking of merely natural courage, but of supernatural endowment with, God, with which God equips those who put their trust in him. In this confidence and courage, they have proclaimed the gospel of God. Or you can even listen to it from Paul's own words in Ephesians 6, 19 through 20. And also for me, the, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul is asking the saints at Ephesus that they would pray for him, that God would actually give him the words to speak. So we have to understand that Paul is not able to leave this prison in Philippi and immediately come to Thessalonica, or Thessalonica rather, battered and bruised and preached the gospel in his own strength. He actually needed boldness in God, God to give him this boldness, that same boldness he prays for in Ephesians, so that he could preach through the pain that he was feeling, right? So it's important to realize that pain is real. We feel that pain, but the gospel has to keep moving through the pain. And the only way that that can happen is if God himself supernaturally empowers us with boldness to do that very thing. And so what I want to do before we move on to the next point is to give us four ways that our gospel ministry should be impacted as we are being honest about our pain and the impact that the pain has on us. So number one, like I said before, we can't overpromise. In 1 Peter 4.12, Paul tells us that we should not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon us. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So we have to fight that temptation to overpromise to our neighbors that when they come to Christ, rather, there'll be freedom from pain, there'll be freedom from hunger, there'll be freedom from all these other things. This is something the Bible never guarantees. So we have to make sure that we don't overpromise what we're calling people to. But number two, we have to make sure that we don't suffer in silence. So Paul says in Thessalonians that they know his pain. They know what he experienced both in Philippi and in Thessalonica. So if you're here today and you're going through something, there should be somebody in this room that can say, I know your pain. There should be someone that is close enough and intimate enough with you that you're able to be open and honest and share with them what you're going through. But if that's not the case, let me recommend you first take that to God but then you share that with a brother and sister in Christ because that's why God has, that's one of the reasons why God has given us each other so that we can encourage one another. Which takes me to my third application is that if someone is courageous and humble enough to come to you with their pain, don't turn a blind eye. Actually try to help them. So Paul said again in 1 Thessalonians that he sent Timothy to establish and to exhort the Thessalonians because he knows their pain is real and they experience and they feel the impact of it. He knows it hurts, and he knows that it can cause believers, especially new believers like this church here, to go astray. So the Bible says Paul sent Timothy to learn about their faith 
for fear that they had fallen away. So again, if somebody comes to you with their pain, with their struggle, don't immediately come out with guns blazing, telling them to put a smile on their face, telling them to have joy. All those things will come in time. But my recommendation is we start by establishing them. We start by encouraging them, and we start by learning just how deep the wounds go that they have been suffering from. Now, once we do that, we can start working with them and walking with them for joy, which will come in time, but I'm recommending that's not where we start. Let's start by taking a cue from Timothy and look to establish, look to encourage, look to learn before we just go in there and start solutioning. And then number four, as we saw earlier, and I'm going to use a basketball term, we can't let the ball stick, right? So Joshua knows this from playing basketball. Usually if someone's saying the ball stick, they're there just dribbling the ball, dribbling the ball, dribbling the ball, head down, not even looking at people who may be open under the basket, because that's how Joshua plays basketball, right? Just like this, just like this, just like this. But a good coach, when the ball is sticking, will tell you to pick your head up, get the ball moving, and pass it to a teammate, right? Same thing with the gospel. we got to get the gospel moving. So when we're going through pain, when we're going through struggle, we can't let it stick. That message needs to get out. So in the same way that a coach would tell you to pass the ball, in God's strength, we got to pass the gospel. we got to make sure it continues to get out. We can't let that thing stick. And so that's the first thing that we learned from Paul in these few verses is that we have to be honest about our pain with those we're ministering to and tell them the truth about it. All right? So any questions about that before we go into point number two? Thank you. I appreciate that encouragement. I got to take you everywhere I go. Yeah, that's all right. All right. Well, there we go. Well, Paul not only says we have to be honest about our pain, he also says that we have to be open and honest with God and tell him the truth about our motives. So, so far in the flashback, Paul has taken us back to Philippi. We've seen him in prison there. He's taken us back to Thessalonica. We've seen him um, or we've seen other people being dragged through the, the streets, but yet he's still able to preach the gospel. Notice now, as we move to verses 3 and 4, we see that Paul is no longer using the past tense. We are no longer in Paul's flashback. So it's like Paul's watching a movie, telling his story, and then he presses the pause button. Right as he's about to declare the gospel in verse 2, Paul is now providing us a voiceover to explain to us the motives behind his preaching. So you'll notice that in these next few verses, verses 3 and 4, that Paul is going to bounce back and forth between negative and positive. Negative and positive. And he's going to use this little negative-positive dance to highlight his true motives for declaring the gospel at Thessalonica. So again, if you look at verse 3 of chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, we'll see that Paul says this, For our appeal does not, negative, spring forth from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. So Paul is saying that his appeal, his actually preaching of the gospel, is not from wrong, corrupted, or false motives. But what they are from, he states in the positive in verse 4. And he says these words. But just as we, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. So Paul realizes that his motives in preaching the gospel, they can't be seen by the Thessalonians. He's not seeking their opinion as he's talking about his motives. They can see his actions, but they can't see his heart. I like the way the Lord puts it in the second half of 1 Samuel 16, 7, where he says, 
For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man sees on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is why Paul doesn't ask them or say this phrase that he used in the first two verses. You know when he's talking about his pain. Instead, God actually, I'm sorry, Paul actually calls God to be a witness. We see that right in verse 5, that he's calling God to be a witness for his motives, testifying that his motives are actually pure. So Paul seeks to be honest with God about his motives because it is God and God alone who sees our hearts. Listen to the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4, verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So Paul understands that the, what the writer of Hebrews declares, that God sees everything and that he can't hide anything from him, including the motives for why he preaches the gospel. And that's why Paul said he's not even trying to people please. Instead, he is ministering for an audience of one, the God of the universe that not only sees, but as we're told here, actually tests our hearts. And if he's able to test our hearts, he's able to determine if the motives for why we preach the gospel are pure or if they're from error, impurity, or an intent to deceive. So what are we to do with this? How are we to apply this section of God's word to our life? So first, I think we have to understand that the God is, I'm sorry, the gospel is God's gospel. He owns it. Look at how Paul puts this in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 13. And we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Or listen to how Paul puts it in Galatians 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Paul is keenly aware that he preaches the gospel, but it's God who owns it. And so we as well, we have to understand that this is not our message. This is God's message, and he owns it. And if we understand that, then we have to also understand that he cares who shares it and how it must be shared. So this is what Paul means in verse 4 when he says that he has been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. God cares who shares his message, and he cares how they share it. And then verse, or, or application point 3 we have to understand that just as Paul was compelled to speak because he had been entrusted with the gospel, we also must speak because we too, if we're in Christ, have been entrusted with the gospel. Not in the same way as Paul as an apostle, but as a disciple maker. If we think about uh, the Great Commission from Matthew 28, where we're supposed to make disciples. So we too have been entrusted with the gospel, and we must speak. And then finally, we have to understand that God still cares who shares his message, and how they share it. So we ourselves, in the same way that Paul was, we have to be honest with our motives as to why we are preaching the gospel, knowing that Jesus sees our heart and he tests our hearts. All right? So that's number two. Number three, the third thing that we have to be honest about is that we have to be honest with man about the truth of our actions. So again, now that we're picking up in verse five, we see that Paul's again talking in the past tense. So we know that he's now pressed play on the movie, and then we're back in his flashback. And so now Paul is telling the Thessalonians how his right motives for preaching the gospel has led to right actions. So in verse 6, we see that Paul never tries to butter them up. He never tried to steal their money, 
And he didn't come around flossing his apostle credentials, trying to, uh, you know, make demands for these people. So after telling the Thessalonians what he didn't do, in verse 7, he positively states what he did do. But he didn't just give a list of what he did. Instead, he uses a word picture that communicates so much better than words ever could. Paul says that he was gentle, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And so I love this image because if we sit with it, we're actually able to see both sides of this thing, the nursing mother and the child. So if you start with the baby, at first glance, whenever you see a baby, the first thing we immediately think of, oh, that baby's cute. They smell good. They make those cute noise. But if you ever get with a nursing mother and they're telling you the truth about this thing, how that baby is at 2 a.m., 4 a.m., right, the wee hours of night when we're not at home, where we're sleeping, but that mama's not, they'll tell you how that baby really is. That baby's drooling all over the place, right? Drool just coming down. They're vomiting. The mother may have just nursed that baby. Baby's throwing it right up, right? Or one of the things that I hate when I was a, uh, yeah, I didn't like it. I wasn't a nursing mother, but I did experience sometimes is that when the baby would eat, right, and it's natural for them to use the bathroom, but sometimes that green, slimy, runny stuff would make its way out of the diaper and make its way up the back. We used to call that an explosion diaper. It's so bad, you don't even try to save the ones. You just throw that thing away because you can't, you, can't, you can't recover from it. It's not worth the time and the effort to try to clean that onesie, right? But they do all that. Then they cry when they're hungry. They cry when they're sick. They cry when they're tired, right? So that's the baby. I want us to have that picture in mind. When Paul says he was like a nursing mother, think about the Thessalonians as this crying baby, right? But now think about a nursing mother, one that we have. We only have one mother, so Natasha, you're the expert. You tell me if I'm lying about what I'm about to say, right? So when that baby is drooling, the mother gets a bib, right? Gets a bib, a new fresh one, so that that baby doesn't get wet. When the baby's vomiting, I've seen my wife do this. She will let the vomit get on her as opposed to the child. So the child's not getting dirty and the child's not messing up their clothes. When that nasty, smelly, green stuff happens, like I said, a nursing mother will gently take off the onesie, wash the baby, put on a fresh diaper, and put on fresh clothes. When that baby is crying because they're hungry, if they're crying because they're tired, if they're crying because they're sick, a good mother learns the cry of the baby so that when it cries, she can give that baby exactly what it needs. So if the cry is a hungry cry, the mother's going to feed it. If it's a sick cry, the mother may get medicine. So this is that picture of the baby and the nursing mother that we need to have in mind. So with all that in mind, Paul says this is how he was with the Thessalonians, right? Completely other focus like a nursing mother would be with their child always putting the child's needs before her own. So that word picture in verse 7 goes hand in hand with those real-life examples that Paul gives in verse 9, where he reminds them that he actually got a J-O-B. Brother man was working so that he wouldn't be a burden on them while he was sharing the gospel. Now, again, notice in between verses, the word picture of verse 7, in those real-life examples in verse 9, Paul is honest with the Thessalonians and tells them, that while he treats them as a nursing mother caring for a child, he loves them because they had become dear to him. So Paul lets them know that he didn't just love them in words, 
but that he put his love into action by sharing the gospel with them, but also sharing his life with them. So when we go back to Acts 17, we see exactly what Paul means when he says he shared the gospel with them. So in Acts 17, verses 2 to 3, Paul says these words. I'm so sorry. Yeah, Luke records Paul as saying these words. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this is this Jesus in whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So Paul explains the gospel to them, and he explains what it means, right? So he explains why Christ had to suffer. He had to suffer because we were sinful people, and so were those that he was ministering to in the synagogue. So because they were sinners, the Bible said that they deserved the wrath of God and eternal separation from him in hell. But Christ came to earth, God in the flesh, lived a perfect life, and he suffers, as we read here, so that we wouldn't have to suffer. So Christ goes to, I'm sorry, Christ goes to the cross as perfect and takes on my sin. But if I repent of my sin and put my faith in him, as we uh, saying earlier, I am now clothed in his righteousness. So that when he becomes, I actually, or when he returns rather, I stand faultless before the throne. So he takes my sin, I take his righteousness. And the Bible says that he's resurrected from the grave so that now I know I have hope beyond the grave. So that if I die, I know that I go to be with him. And so we read this in Acts 17 that this is the gospel that he actually preached to the Thessalonians. But like he says here, he not only shared the gospel, but Paul says he shared his very, his very self with them. So Paul wasn't in a rush with them. He wasn't just trying to give them a canned gospel message and then go to the next town. He actually sits with them. He has dinner with them. He eats with them. He patiently listens to their questions about the faith. And as we've already seen, he opens up his life with them about the pain that he had at Philippi, the struggles that he's had in cities before then. But then he also tells them about the joy that he's seen of people coming to faith in Christ. And while it's hard work, it's rewarding work. And he shares that with them as well. And so like Paul, we might be, in call, we might be called to endure things from those we desperately want to reach. And just like that nursing mother patiently and gently caring for her child when it drools, when it vomits, when it has that green stuff going up the back, we may be called to do the same thing as we're ministering on the streets. And so when you guys go out to watering the word, we're trying to reach people for the gospel. We may have to endure people coming and being mad with us, people coming and cursing us out. We may have to endure those kind of things. When we're trying to share the gospel at the bus stop, there may be people who are wearing provocative clothing, the kind of outfit where you wonder if they put on all the stuff that came in the box. We may have to endure some of those things. And there are a thousand other instances that we may have to endure like a nursing mother with her child because we want the best for those that we're ministering to. And where it's going to require us to be patient with them, gentle with them, in the same way that Paul was gentle with the Thessalonians. And so in the same way that Paul was, that's how we're supposed to be when we're sharing the gospel, gentle, like a nursing mother with her children. That's the third thing. Number four, we see that Paul says that he has to be honest with the Thessalonians about the truth and the goal that he has for them. So notice how Paul switches the word picture in verse 11 from a nursing mother 
now to a father with his children to get this point across. So he's still loving them, but he's loving them in a different way. This is a different kind of love. This is what I would call tough love. So I remind my son all the time that he and I don't have much time left before he's out of my house. Kind of like Chris going to college, my son and I have three summers left together before a brother man getting up out of my house, right? I mean, he's going, he's going somewhere. And I tell him we only have three summers left, and it's not that much time. And I tell him all the time that as a father, it's my job to look forward to the man I want you to be, look at you now, realize how far apart you are, and I break down and I cry. I pick myself back up, but then we get to the job at hand. We got to fill those gaps of where I want him to be as a godly man and where he is now, and we have to get after it. Because failure for my son is not an option. I refuse to launch into this world a man in age but a boy in character. That is not an option for me. And the same thing is true here. So Paul is telling them, and he doesn't hide the goal of their Christian life. He tells them that the end game is not just their justification, although that's important, and, but at the moment they come to faith, that's really the beginning. The end game for the, for the Thessalonians is to live a life that is pleasing to God. So one commentator puts it this way as he talks about the end game, this idea of walking in a manner worthy of God. But though this is clear, but though there is, I'm sorry, let me start again. But though there is this clear note of tenderness and understanding, it is also plain that the message was uncompromising. The preachers had urged or charged the converts to live lives worthy of God, which sets before us the noblest possible idea of life. Clearly, Paul had not toned down the demands of the gospel in any way. And we are reminded that when we become followers of Christ, no less demand is made of us. More literally, the expression means to walk worthily of God. Where the metaphor of walking gives the idea of steady, if unspectacular progress. There is nothing static about being a Christian, end quote. So what Paul was calling them to is steady but sure progress. But notice, he doesn't just tell them that what the goal is and then abandon them, hoping that they find their way. That would be like inviting someone to your house before GPS, before the cell phone. You invite somebody over to dinner. You give them your address, but you don't give them direction. That's not loving. That's actually cruel. And we would never expect that person to ever find their way to our house without direction. But that's not what Paul does. Paul says that like a loving father, he not only gives them the destination, but he gives them directions. The Bible says that he exhorts them or teaches them how to actually walk in a manner worthy of God. And Paul said that he exhorted each of them, right? So this is not a general public exhortation. He's actually being intimate with them, one-on-one, private conversations, walking with them, teaching them, and modeling with his life what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of God. But he doesn't just teach them and then hope for the best. Paul says that he also encouraged them. So again, Paul knows firsthand how hard their life in Thessalonica was. He knows that these Christians can't live undercover. So if you remember in Acts uh, 17, they actually know these people by name. They drag them down to City Hall, and the authorities are able to see them. So their attempt, if they wanted to live in an undercover fashion, it's not possible. 
the wicked mob knows who they are. The authorities know who they are. People know that these young Christians are actually Christians. And so what Paul says is that he not only exhorts them, but he also encourages them. He wants to encourage them because he knows that they need it. He knows that the life that they have to live is a hard one, and they can't escape it. So he wants to tell them the end game, walking in a manner worthy of God. He wants to teach them how to do that, and he wants to encourage them along the way. But notice, even though Paul is aware of the hostile environment they live in, he charges them or demands that they actually live in a life worthy of God. He makes no excuses for them. He is honest with them and tells them about the truth of his goal for them because this is what God, the father of all of us, if we're in Christ, calls them to. So Paul calls them to this because God calls it to him first. So listen to this from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So Paul is behaving as a loving mother with his children, but that doesn't stop him from being this firm father that they need, a firm father that calls them to maturity in Christ. So it's a both and kind of thing when we're ministering the gospel. And in doing so, Paul shows us that balance is required. We can't just be this gentle, nursing, loving mother and not be that firm father that calls them to maturity in Christ because, again, this is what God calls all of us to. So when you and I engage in gospel ministry, Yes, we want to be gentle and loving when we're ministering to someone, but once they come to faith, we have to be honest with them about Christian maturity. We must be careful to teach them the full counsel of God and do so in an intimate and personal manner like Paul did here. And we must engage, encourage them along the way, being patient when they fall, helping them get back up when they do fall, and then doing it all over again. More teaching, more encouragement, and a constant call to walk in a manner worthy of God. So as we close, if we want to follow Paul's example and engage in authentic gospel ministry, ministry that honors God, then we must be honest and tell the truth about the pain we experience, our motives in sharing the gospel, our actions toward those we minister to, and the goal of Christian life. And then we trust God to do the rest, because at the end of the day, only he himself and bring someone to faith. But by his grace, if we are faithful stewards of the gospel, we pray that we too can hear like Paul that our coming was not in vain. Let's pray. Lord God, again, we do thank you for your word as it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you for this account that we read in 1 Thessalonians 2 of how Paul came and how he was honest with those he ministered to about his pain, about his motives, about his actions and about how he called them to Christian maturity. Father, it's my humble desire, my prayer this morning, that as we too engage in Christian ministry, authentic ministry that honors you, that we would take a key, or a cue rather, right from Paul, and that we ourselves would engage in gospel ministry in the same way that he does. And Father, we ask that by your grace, by your sovereign grace, that you would call many people to faith in Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.